The Sound of Freedom, a film produced on a minimal budget and snubbed by Mada Studios, stuns Hollywood in 2023 by outperforming blockbusters such as Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. The film has been praised by millions for tackling an albeit disturbing yet important topic that often garners little attention. But the movie, based on the real-life rescue of children from sex traffickers, has also been the subject of controversy. I recently interviewed the executive producer, Utah-based real estate magnate Paul Hutchinson, who went on to cover himself to tackle human trafficking and whose own actions are weaved into the narrative of the film. Since conducting that interview, Hutchinson himself has been criticised by sections of the media, and we'll come to that point and his response later in the episode. But to begin with, we'll start with the movie that brought Paul Hutchinson and his movement to my attention. So Paul, this was a big year for Hollywood after COVID, with all the big studios pushing out major movies and all the megastars lined up. So The Sound of Freedom is up against it in a sense. You know, Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, huge marketing budgets. Yet somehow it rose up and outperformed the big hitters. What do you attribute the movie's success to? This is why we made the movie. We made it to create a movement. And I think that the world is ready. The world is ready to have real stuff, not things that are fabricated by Hollywood and whatnot and all this fake world that we're living in. They want to know really what's going on and what we as good Americans and, and throughout the world, mankind can do to fix problems like this. This is These are conversations we should have had years ago that are finally, finally coming to the point where we can have these conversations. So I'm not a movie investor. I'm a real estate investor and I've done very well in that. The reason I put money into this is that we felt very strongly that this needed to be a movement. And that's exactly what happened. And what's super exciting about it is that we got cut off everywhere from traditional distribution, from Hollywood and big media. Yet this is something that was brought to the people by the people. And that's why it was so successful. It's hard for me to think of anything more disturbing than child trafficking. So on paper, a movie that A, draws awareness to the problem, B, tells the stories of people who have actually fought to tackle it, and C, helps to try and create a movement to educate people going forward. That would be something very uncontroversial, that people would say, this is horrific, we need to do something about it. But the movie has been heavily criticised in some quarters. The lead actor, Jim Caviezel, made some remarks that were viewed as being pro QAnon, even though the director and other people have said, you know, those are his personal thoughts, it has nothing to do with the movie. It's also being criticised by some people who say that it focuses on a more sensational side of child trafficking, which again, the contrary argument from my mind would be, there are lots and lots of war films, but we didn't say don't watch The Great Escape because there were other events in World War II that were even more dramatic and even more deadly. But nonetheless, as the executive producer of this, why do you feel that it has proved to be polarizing? You would think that something like this would bring us all together, 
all of us together. This is this is not an issue for the rich or the poor. It's for all of us. It's not an issue for the right or the left. It's all of us. It's not the colored and not. It, it's all of all of us can get behind this purpose. All of us saving the kids. You know, you can even if somebody is not religious, leave leave the word God in God's children are not for sale. Leave that out of it. Children are not for sale. Period. Right. There's nothing to debate about this. There's nothing to debate. And yes, there was some some liberties taken in the creation of the film, but all of the bad guys really existed. We took eight different rescue missions and put them all together in this one storyline. There's hundreds of hidden heroes that are still out there today that are finding these kids, bringing them back to their families, hundreds of them. We had to take all of these different stories and all of these heroes and put them together in just a few different characters in the movie. But to say that this doesn't exist, that's bullcrap. Now, Mm -hmm. the reality is the majority of child trafficking doesn't happen that way. You know, a healthy family, a child that's that's taken, put into a container ship, taken to another country, that that's not typical, but that does happen. But what this does do is it opens up the dialogue so that we as good parents can say, okay, this was something that wasn't something we could talk about over dinner five, 10 years ago. It just wasn't polite conversation. Today we can say, okay, what, what can we learn from this? And what can we do as humanity to end something this horrific? Can we do it? Yes, we can. All of us can come together. This shouldn't be a right issue. Shouldn't be a left. It shouldn't be polarizing in any way. Some months ago, I did an episode on the African country of Mauritania where slavery was only fairly recently criminalized and unfortunately is still quite prevalent. But what I wasn't aware of, and your film has helped to shed light on, is the scale of human trafficking, not just in places like Mauritania, but in the United States and in Canada and in Britain and countries all around the world, both the sheer number of people who are caught up in this as victims and also the money being made and the number of individuals who are doing insidious acts you know with children or consuming child pornography were you surprised when you first got involved with this at the scale of the problem on a global level you know the very first call that i got was from our attorney general and he introduced me to a homeland security agent who's portrayed by jim caviezel in the movie and he was laying out these numbers and I thought, are you kidding me? Like fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world is, you know, referring to human trafficking as a whole. The second most profitable, second only to the illegal drug trade. It's already passed the illegal arms trade and they believed it's soon going to surpass the drug trade. And I'm thinking this is amazing. I thought that slavery disappeared at the time of Abraham Lincoln. I couldn't even imagine that that human slavery at all existed today, let alone child trafficking. I mean, where in the world did that come from? And who, who has gotten to the point in their life where they think that that's okay on any level to be selling a child for anything? There've been some really disturbing figures passed around in recent years, you know, from the UN and other groups talking about the number of, you know, 50 million people being trafficked or, you know, engaged in some form of slavery and uh, billions and billions of dollars being made from this kind of exploitation. When those sums of money are involved, is that indicative 
of the fact that there are just so many people around the world who are willing to finance and pay for this? Or does it suggest that, you know, within that group, there are just some people who are immensely wealthy and are sort of skewing their spending and kind of driving this? Those numbers, the hundreds over $100 billion number that you're hearing in a lot of places, that's all of human trafficking. Okay. This is this not just child sex trafficking. That's a much smaller number. But understand this. Even if it was a million dollars total, that's bad enough, right? No child being sold is okay. So yes, there is a lot of money involved in, in human trafficking. And it's primarily because, like it says in the movie, you can sell a bag of cocaine once. You can sell a child 10, 15 times a day for 10 plus years. Even in, in adult trafficking, you know, you look at the amount of money that is made from prostitution, et cetera. Now, a lot of people say, you know, is all that trafficking? Let me tell you this. If you're watching this right now and you're thinking, okay, you know what? Uh, adults uh, dealing with other adults, that's whatever they want to do. Okay. I agree with that. I really do. Don't tell my parents. They'd get all pissed. Oh, you know, you know, prostitutes, whatever. But I agree. Adults making decisions with adults, that's one thing. The problem is this is because of of the fact that that's such a an underground type of a world the majority of women that are prostitutes that are in throughout the United States the majority of them upwards of 80 or 90% of them that say they're independent are not right you're contributing right. to human trafficking even pornography Many sit back and say, this is a victimless crime. You know, only person I'm hurting is myself, maybe my wife, maybe my kids, whatever. The reality is you're contributing to human trafficking. The majority of those women are not in that position by choice. Now, in the pre-publicity for the movie, a lot of it centered around the character portrayed by Jim Caviezel, who, while you said all of the characters are kind of combinations of several people, there was a particular agent that most people seem to closely associate with the Jim Caviezel character. What I hadn't realized until I started looking more into it is that aside from being an executive producer, you yourself went undercover as an operative, put your own life at risk, trying to save these kids. And, you know, there's a character in the movie or events in the movie that are based on your own experiences too. Can you tell me what that was like going undercover into this dangerous, dangerous world? Absolutely. So in the movie, my character was Pablo. So about halfway through the Homeland Security agents, like, okay, I, you know, his wife says you should quit your job, find those kids. He said, I can do so. I've just got to convince Pablo. I'm Pablo. I'm, I'm the, the one who, who was asked to come and, and play that role undercover. Now, my role as the person who funded the mission was multiple people in real life. People like Glenn Beck. Now, if you've ever heard of Glenn, a big radio talk show, you know, him and his audience. So the reality is, if you consider Glenn's audience, myself, other, other donors, et cetera, hundreds of people were depicted in that role of Pablo. Now, it was only me that asked, it was asked to come down under, oh, there's me. And there was a guy by the name of Scott that was there as well, that was a big donor. So there are a lot of different characters that were involved there. The reality is this. That opportunity to help fund that mission was a big deal for me. I thought, wow, you know what? I can, if I can pay some money, donate some money and to help pull kids out of hell and get them back to their families, that's a huge deal. But what changed my life 
was the opportunity to go and play that role. Now, it was dark, it was heavy, but it was transformational. When I was able to see the darkest part of humanity in somebody selling me an 11-year-old child, I thought, what has this world gotten to where that's okay in any culture, anywhere? And in reality, you know, in the movie... I was convinced to go when the Homeland Security agent leaves a picture of this of this child, this 11-year-old girl, and right. my driver gives it to me. In reality, I was already there. I was together with the traffickers, and one of them leans forward and gives me his phone. He goes, Pablo, I have a gift for you, and he shows me his phone, and there's this picture of this 11-year-old girl. In the movie, that girl wasn't there at that rescue. We uh, found her in a, in a different jungle area. In reality, that jungle was an entirely different Rescue mission with an entirely different team that was in true story there and going in there. She was there. She was there at that island, the one that he showed me in that picture. And as she stood before me, the, the traffickers brought her out and she's standing in front of me and she's, she's shaking. There's tear stains on her makeup face. And I made a commitment to myself, to God and to that child that I would do everything in my power to eradicate that evil from the face of the earth. There was nothing worse than I could think of than this child being presented to me as a buyer. And since that time, Dan, I have led or played a key part in over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. I've seen the darkest of the dark. I've seen so much evil. And I've come forward in this place to say, okay, what do we need to do? To fix this problem. How can we truly liberate humanity? What needs to happen to take away the demand? And that's why I've decided to go public, because I believe we can rescue millions of children this way. I'm curious what it was like for you actually having to sit down in a room with individuals involved in these insidious activities and, you know, pretending that you're like minded and what were these individuals like? It makes me think back to, you know, after World War II, we had Eichmann, one of the most notorious Nazis, went on trial. And it was said at the time that, you know, some of the witnesses, some of the survivors were surprised when they actually saw him in court that he was so banal. They expected somebody who seemed much more superficially evil and threatening and he was this very kind of dull, bookish man who was responsible for so much evil. I was wondering, you know, with these characters that you met, were these people who oozed, you know, sort of evil? Or were these just similarly mundane, banal kind of guy next door type figures? On the outside, on the outside, a lot of these traffickers, you wouldn't know you're walking down the street. You know, unless energetically you could feel their aura, you know, and you could just that darkness that was there. But it was interesting. You know, we had the female trafficker that was depicted in the movie. She was a she was a beautiful pageant queen. And I thought that maybe she would be more compassionate than the guys because she was a female. I was wrong. I was wrong about that. And one of the traffickers, the one who had the piece of property he wanted to develop into a child brothel sex resort, he was wearing a polo shirt. He was, you know, saw himself as a businessman that that was just figuring out ways to to make a whole bunch of money selling these children, you know? And I think to myself, how does somebody get to the point 
where they can smile and live a normal life, quote unquote, you know, go to the grocery store and interact with people knowing that they're selling children. Now, I've come to an understanding that, yes, this is the neighbor next door a lot, a lot more than you can imagine. The majority of trafficking doesn't happen in, you know, some third world country taking some American child down there. The majority of trafficking happens from a broken foster care program or runaways or, or broken homes or even within your own home. They, literally, you walk out in front of your door and you go out on your porch and you look right and you look left down your street. One out of every four of those homes that have children in them is a dangerous place for children. And we're like, how does that work? What Roughly 40% of all women at some time in their life have been a, a victim of sexual violence. Most of them as children, most of them when they were children. And, and so you're sitting back going, wow, you know, the best thing I can do when I watch this movie is to go dress up like Rambo and go to Columbia. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's to have conversations with your own kids, making sure that they're comfortable coming to you and saying, hey, you know what, dad, I, I don't feel good about going to see Uncle Harry anymore because of this or that. Or I don't I don't feel comfortable going to my friend's house because her brother, you know, grabs me on the butt or or my babysitter, she shows us pornography and, and she says we should, should trust her more than you. These are all grooming behaviors that you wouldn't realize that that babysitter or that neighbor or that uncle are going down those dark roads and putting your children at risk. One thing that struck a chord with me about this movie is that, you know, I'm from England. And when I was a kid growing up, there was this particular very famous DJ television host who was honored by the Pope, honored by the Queen, seen as this, you know, great benefactor, wonderful with children. Then after he died, suddenly all this evidence emerged that had been ignored, suppressed or quietened through lawsuits, showing that he was this prolific child predator. The average age of somebody who comes out and says, I, I was abused as a child or I was sexually abused. The average age is 52 years old. Wow. And you have to ask yourself, why is the average age so that late in life? Well, it's probably because the abuser is now dead, right? The abuser was 20 plus years older, 20, 30 years right. older, and they're in the 70s and 80s and they passed. And so that's why that's the medium age, which was which is sad because these people have... Literally, a lot of psychologists have said that half of that trauma can be released by just talking about it. And so if we're holding on to that kind of trauma, I'm 52 years old. I, I've raised my kids. I've got grandkids. And so if somebody's holding on to that trauma throughout their entire life, it comes out in anger issues or physical abuse or verbal abuse or even in some cases sexual abuse of children in a percentage of them that pass that trauma on. So if we can help them release that and cleanse themselves from all of that toxin that they're holding on to, I believe we can we can save millions of children. As you pointed out, most of the child abuse happens in families, you know, in suburbs, and it's not all third world countries. But since we are talking about the movie, which focuses on that, Thinking back to the Middle Ages, you know, medieval times, there was this tradition of families marrying off their 11-year-old, their 12-year-old daughter to some prince or some knight, you know, for a dowry. There was this financial aspect to that. What we look at now is, you know, pretty disturbing relationship between a kid and a grown man. But, you know, that was the time. I wonder if in some third world countries, 
if there is still kind of a prevalence of that kind of mentality to where okay now my daughter is old enough we don't really have a good education system here she's pretty much an adult because she's 12 she's 13 i can marry her off to this seemingly nice gentleman or you know even the kind of charles dickens thing that some benevolent old man comes into town and says hey i'll take your daughter off your hands and give her this great education you know do these parents perhaps naively think somehow you know these are men with good intent who will take care of their child or do you think they actually realize you know what's going to happen to their kid once they take the money and this individual takes their child do they realize they're going to end up you know being abused a lot of them know exactly what's happening now, we, we can be super swift to judge. Oh, I, I would never sell my child. Well, you know, in some of these third world countries, you've got five kids and they're starving to death. And um, you sell your 12-year-old for enough money to be able to pay for the food for the other kids. And you, you tell her, hey, look, you know what? You're going to be working in this brothel and hopefully some, some rich German will come in and, and uh, sweep you off your feet. I mean, they know that's not going to happen, but they believe that that's a better lifestyle than than what they were experiencing. So yeah, there's there's a, poverty is a huge contributing factor. And culturally in some of these areas it's not as horrific than starving to death, you know, to be, you know, working in a brothel. And so, you know, the sad thing is is that you have a combination of money and then you've got first world countries with wealthy people that are coming in and the victim in all of this is the children. So right. we've need to, we need to have this, this approach where we're taking away the demand so that there isn't the extra money there. And then at the same time, we need to help with the, the poverty situation and the hunger situation. So that's never an issue that they never will be selling their kids into that. But I will say this, there's a lot of the rescues that we did where parents were involved or an well, aunt or an uncle were involved. You know, a lot of these traffickers have, were ended up selling their own kids, as well as some of the others. And so anytime that we go down a road as, as a human being, where we are making money off of the sale of another person, whether that's a child, whether it's a 20-year-old, whatever, and anytime that we're looking at another human being as anything less than the divine light that is in them, these things start out with arrogance and with with pride and greed and all of these negative emotions that are the links in the chain that eventually lead to something this dark. So that's what we have to do as humanity. We have to say, okay, what if we back up that stream a whole long ways, where, where is the start? Where does everything start? And how can we fix that so that it never gets to that end, which is the abuse of a child? Obviously, a lot of this activity happens on the internet and the dark web. And not just because of this movie, but in general, one of the things that has always amazed me and frustrated me is that if I go on YouTube and upload a Bon Jovi song within, you know, a split second, something pops up and says, hey, this is copyright material. You have to take it down. And yet, you know, just recently I saw or heard an article on NPR. They were talking about multiple Facebook groups that human traffickers were using to publicly advertise for people to traffic. And obviously, you know, we have these issues with child pornography and we have issues with terrorism popping up on the Internet. Do you feel that the media companies, the tech companies are doing enough or 
using the resources that we know they have based on how they protect copyright films music and so forth to actually tackle these kind of crimes is there more of a responsibility on these companies and should they be doing more absolutely yeah we we all know the capability of our government you know i mean we've got a place here in utah that the nsa has spent billions of dollars on this massive massive underground facility that is tracking everything everything every word right now Hello, NSA. I mean, they are, they're tracking every phone call, every, everything that's transmitted. And so with that kind of power together with AI, we could absolutely end all of this. The question is why? You know, why is there so many resources putting into, putting into the wrong places? I mean, even our justice system is super frustrating to me that somebody will spend more time in jail for some cannabis or some psychedelic mushrooms, you know, that are literally safer than table sugar, right? But were thrown under the bus as a, as a schedule one drug in the late sixties, they'll spend more time in jail for something like that than they will raping a child. What are we coming to where, where we have such limited punishments on something so horrific and harsh punishments on things that aren't hurting people. So yeah, I'm super frustrated with the lack of resources that are going into things that really matter. One of the things that you've mentioned is that we could try to tackle this problem by reducing the demand for children for child pornography. But if there are people out there for whatever reason have this desire to participate or to see this type of thing, how do we tackle that? Well, here's the deal. You know, if we believe that somebody is just born that way, then we're all screwed, right? We might as well just arrest all of them, put them all in prison. We're done with them. The issue is this. We need to understand the, the progression down what I call that dark road. Okay. What does that progression look like? So let's start with something like pornography, right? Every now, just because you've seen pornography, everybody who's watching this right now has probably seen pornography. Just because you've seen it doesn't mean you're going to become a pedophile. But every one of these guys started out with a hardcore addiction to pornography that led to something harder where they, they, they needed like a hardcore drug. They needed a, something harder and more grotesque. And maybe some of them is rape videos. And some of them is a little bit younger, a little bit younger. Pretty soon they're fantasizing about something they wouldn't have even thought was attractive five years ago. Now I say it started out with a hardcore addiction, but that's not where it started out. Let's talk about all of us. Okay. All of us that are here watching it right now. Where did that you know, anybody who's ever been looking at pornography, where did that start? Well, it started with us looking at a, at a Sports Illustrated, you know, swimsuit issue, right? Oh, that's pretty exciting. And then, then the next step was, okay, maybe it's the Victoria's Secret, the, you know, the lingerie model. Oh, okay. That's, that's more exciting. And then the next step was maybe some soft porn and then some harder porn. Everybody has gone down that road, right? And the question is, where does it stop? Where do we say, okay, that's hard enough. It's hard enough. I'm not going to be looking any more than the, the soft core stuff. So we need to change our direction. We need to change what is you know, our, anytime that you're looking at a woman with anything less than the divine feminine and you turn her into an object, then you start going down that road. Right. And so we have to, all of us have to say, okay, where does all of this start? And maybe it starts with all of the crap that Hollywood and big media are feeding us 
that we can't even censor in our own homes. We're like, okay, if I want to see a good movie, I guess I have to be okay with the the sex and the vulgarity because that's the only good movies have that stuff in them, right? And, and with no ability to effectively censor it. So we have to, all of us have these conversations and say, okay, if you imagine a, a chain, a big, long chain, and our goal is to break that chain somewhere. And the end link on that chain is the abuse of a child. We never want to get anywhere close to that as a society, right? That's the end. Now, unfortunately, for the last 10 years, that's where I've been dealing. We've been arresting those pedophiles. We've been rescuing those kids. It's already got to the end of that chain. What if we can back that up and say, okay, what was the link that led to that? What was the link that led to that? And start having those discussions as a family, as a community. And how we can break that chain way before it gets to that point. So people ask me all the time, Dan, they say, Paul, how can you go face to face with somebody selling you an eight-year-old child and not have them see the the anger in your eyes and your hatred in your eyes? My answer surprised them and and it makes some of them mad. It's because Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that, that feels bad for them. How can you feel bad? They're selling you a child. No. I will do everything in my power to ensure they never, ever, ever touch another child again. But what I wish more than anything is that we had a a time machine. We can go back five years, 10 years, 20 years before they ever, ever touched a child. And what if we could, we could figure out what in the world was going on in their life that turned them down that road? Maybe they were raped as a child. Maybe they, they probably were. They probably had a thousand bad things that happened to them. That still doesn't justify it, right? They probably also made a thousand bad decisions that got them to that point. What if we could take them as an adolescent before they ever even had kids or as a young adult and give them the help that they needed to shed their own trauma? Literally, Dan, one in every three people who have experienced that kind of trauma as a child, one in three become contact offenders themselves when they grow up. Now, Mm -hmm. God bless the two-thirds that grow up to say, you know what, not on my watch. I'm going to ensure the safety of children because of my trauma. But there is one-third of those who end up becoming contact offenders. So let's love them and help them change and heal before they ever pass their trauma on to somebody else. Now, as you've said, not everybody is going to be in a position to, you know, go to Colombia or Haiti or wherever and rescue unfortunate children from those nations who are being abused. But there are people in our streets, in our neighborhoods who are suffering. So for anyone, you know, who's either seen the movie or is listening to this podcast and just as a concerned citizen wants to take steps to try to help as they can within the framework of their own life, their own social network. What kind of resources are there out there? There's a a lot of good, good organizations out there, hundreds of them that are fighting trafficking, that are providing education. My, My foundation is called the Child Liberation Foundation. You can go to liberatechildren.org, liberatechildren.org. Or, and with that, um, on the Child Liberation Foundation, you can find a lot of good resources. You can, you can donate a dollar a month or a hundred dollars, whatever, you know, to help not only fight child trafficking, but to create healing. They have a lot of beautiful things that they're working on to create healing. Also, we have some resources on liberating humanity. You know, my, all of my social media, you can just type in liberating. I come up first, 
liberating.humanity. And there's a lot of information that's coming out there on the website, liberating-humanity. There's some tools there. In fact, within the next couple of weeks, you'll have some links to a lot of the training that I did. Uh, my, my Krav Maga trainer, my edged weapons trainer, my improvised weapon, all of these different trainers. And people say, well, why, how is that going to help? Well, if somebody has dealt with that kind of trauma, we, we put them through a lot of this training so it can build their self-confidence and they can not be a victim again. Those same things can prevent people from being a victim in the first place. Getting some of that self-esteem, knowing that you can handle yourself in any kind of a situation is super valuable. In addition to that, we'll have some other resources helping people with their trauma therapy by going through some you know, different types of breathwork exercises and meditation stuff and some resource phone numbers, et cetera. So there's a lot of great things online, not only to help with anti-trial trafficking, but like I say, Dan, the most important thing is for us to back up that chain, have those conversations. How can we keep our kids safe? People ask me, okay, I went, I left the movie. What do I do now? Hug your kids. How is that going to help? Well, the children that are at most risk come from broken families and from runaways and from uh, a broken fosters program. Love your kids, hug your kids and have a relationship with them where you can have those conversations with them to keep them safe. That's the best way to keep your kids safe. A few weeks after I'd interviewed Paul, Vice produced an article critical of Paul's actions during one particular undercover trip to Cabo San Lucas in Mexico, specifically the allegations revolved around an incident where Paul was portraying himself as a wealthy sex predator seeking out young children. A sex trafficker offered him the services of a woman who the Mexican police later said was 18 years of age, but who in the moment it was suggested was 16 years of age. The trafficker, in trying to determine Paul's authenticity, asked him to touch the young woman's chest, and according to the report, he complied. The incident in question was investigated in both Mexico and the US, and no charges were ever filed against Paul for any kind of wrongdoing. I did ask him about this incident and received a response from him and his assistant, which is as follows. You don't find trafficked children in the lobby of the Ritz-Carlton, and Paul has ventured into the most dangerous places on earth to rescue these children. While operating undercover, Paul must act entirely like the traffickers are expecting. If he does anything not in line with their expectations, he risks his own life and the lives of all the men with him, as well as the lives of the children he is there to rescue. In regards to the undercover mission in Cabo St. Lucas, 23 victims were liberated, and some very bad people were locked in prison. All Paul's undercover work was done with integrity and honor. He would not tolerate anyone that did not share the same standards. Paul has worked with many good people on these missions and has separated himself from those who did not share his standards. 